When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. confession in the hour of my deepest need, when the pool of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn seed, there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere, toiling in the danger and in the morals of despair. Don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. Like Cain, I now behold this chain of events that I must break. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand in every leaf that trembles in every grain of sand. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about Bob Dylan's Every Grain of Sand, uh, I think inarguably one of his greatest works, is uh, respectively the co-host and host of the Into the Weird and Long Box of Darkness podcast, my pal Herman Lowe. Hi, Herman. Hi, Rob. Hey, it's great to be recording with you again, man. Thanks for having me on Pod Dylan, especially, you know, since um, this is not something that, you know, I expected, but it was such a surprise. And I'm really honored that you asked me to do this. So thanks for that, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've enjoyed talking to you in the episodes we've done together. I was on Into the Weird, and of course, you did a Treasury cast with Grant Richter. And it was sort of funny how I, I never know whether somebody's a Dylan fan or not unless they come out and tell me. And then over on Twitter, on, on pod underscore Dylan, I quoted a song, I think something from Street Legal, I believe. And yeah. you you responded to it with like the following <laughs> verse or something. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, Herman must be a fan because that's a deep cut. You know, that's <laughs> everybody knows Blowing in the yeah. Wind, but th- I think it was like No Time to Think or something. Thing. And so I, when I when I feel like, uh, you know, I've noticed someone is a fan, I'm like a dog. I'm like, squirrel, you know, I get all excited. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wrote you and I'm like, Herman, are you a fan? And y- yes, you yes, you are. I was like, oh, this is perfect. So now here we are. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad you reached out. I think that's the, the good thing about the lyrics you post on Twitter every now and then when you post a bit of a verse of Bob Dylan. Yeah, you can really suss out who would respond and who would be a fan. And that's a good way to find potential podcasting partners. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really turn out that way, but it, it has, it has worked out. Uh, in, sort well, of, so, in my case, at least. Yeah. In my yeah. case. <laughs> no, it's, it's been, it's been great. So this is, this is fantastic. So of course, this is your first appearance on the show. I have to ask you, like, how did you become a fan? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I'm a South African by birth, you know, so uh, Dylan's always been very big in South Africa, uh, but he's never toured there. So, you know, he's got a big fan base, but, you know, um, that that's the thing I should mention right off the bat. But there are a lot of South African Dylan fans. However, when I grew up in the in the late 70s and, and early 80s, you know, my mom and dad, they're very musically inclined people. Like my mom's uh, been a music teacher for more than 40 years. And uh, my dad, you know, he plays a bit of guitar, but he's an avid record collector from the you know, for the late 50s, 60s, he's got a lot of albums and stuff like that. So he's a massive Dylan fan. My mom, not so much. She loves cover versions of his songs. But, <laughs> you know, so my point is Dylan music was always playing around the house in the 70s and early 80s. But, you know, because I was a little kid, I labeled music in two categories, you know, mom's music, dad's music. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of took Dylan for granted in those early years because, you know, you're a kid, you're, you're, you're under the age of 10. You don't really register that, oh, I'm a fan of this uh, in terms of music or so. But um, 
then, I, I mean, one of my earliest Dylan memories, I should mention this, uh, Rob, as a kind of uh, outtake, is my mom and dad arguing over, uh, if not for you, which version is better, Dylan's or <laughs> Olivia Newton-John's? <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I think for for some strange reason I, I have this in my mind. I'm not sure if this is true, but I think my mom won that argument, which is weird <laughs> because my dad he loves Dylan so much, but you know my mom had the you know the the drop on him with that argument. Anyway, so I kind of you know <laughs> it's a little bit of a weird story there, but um, I remember that because you know uh, those songs were always playing you know in the house, and I could I could definitely hear the differences between, you know, the country songs that other artists recorded and they labeled Dylan's songs as country. And, and of course, the songs my dad preferred, which was Dylan's originals and the more folksy kind of uh, tunes with more guitar, which I liked. I, I was more on my dad's side. Um, but I think Dylan really only clicked for me um, in the early 1990s when I started, you know, collecting CDs on my own. And it was, okay, this is also another weird story. You've probably never had a guest say this before, but I got into Dylan, really, really got into Dylan through the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. Okay, um, all right, he did sure, a, sure. Yeah, he did a cover of You Belong to Me right. on that song. Now, I was obsessed with that movie for only a couple of months, but then I think it came out in 1994, I'm not sure. But then I bought the soundtrack a couple of weeks after I saw the movie because I was so in love with all the songs on there. And the Dylan one, the cover of You Belong to Me, really stood out to me because of the quality of Dylan's voice. Now, I had always known Dylan's distinctive voice, you know, that sandpaper kind of sound that he's so well known for. But, you know, on that song, it really it sort of haunted me for a while. And then I went back and listen to all the Dylan songs that I already knew peripherally from listening to it with my dad. And, you know, the, the way I did this was I literally just, I wasn't living at home at the time. This is now around 1994. I went back to my dad's house and I said, listen, can, can I listen to your Dylan records? Can you, can you take them out for me? And I want to listen to them. And I remember my dad, he looked at me and he had this like, suddenly this slow grin, <laughs> this smile just appeared on his face and he was like, yeah, let's do that. So, you know, he took me over to the garage, which he had converted into his, you know, uh, man cave. (laughs) (laughs) And he, because he hadn't been playing lots of records during the nineties in the house for some reason, I don't know why. I think it's because my mom had some music students over, you know, and, um, you know, a lot back then, uh, in the house. So, you know, my dad was doing his own stuff uh, in, in his own place. And then we sat down and, and we listened for an ho- a whole afternoon. We listened to his 60s and 70s output, uh, Dylan stuff, and then we talked about it. And that's one of the best memories I had with my dad. You know, the first time we really, like, clicked on an artist. Uh, and I was maybe, like, uh, 17 at the time. So that's when I started collecting on my own, when I started buying the CDs and and filling in the gaps because my dad hadn't been collecting much Dylan in the 90s. He he had done a lot of, I think the last album he bought was probably Infidel uh, from the 80s, you know? So he had all of the stuff from the 60s and 70s and a, a couple of stuff from the early 80s. So, you know, I just listened to it obsessively and uh, that's how I got into, you know, Dylan. That's a very long <laughs> origin story for me with Dylan, but... I hope it, it suffices, Rob. No, uh, a little bit of a fear. That's a wonderful story. That that must have been so rewarding for your dad for 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 yeah. you to, for you to come to him un unprovoked like that and to ask. That's that's fantastic. I love that story. Yeah, and that's that's why I 
told you over Twitter, like my dad got me into Dylan because he, you know, it, it helps if you've got someone, a fellow fan to talk to. But oh, it being yes. your dad, you know, it's kind of like I discovered a side of my dad I, I never knew. Mm-hmm. I, I knew he was a big Dylan fan, but I never talked to him about it. You know, so then he was so happy because he could finally, well, he probably did this with his friends in the 60s or, or whenever. But, you know, this was the first time, I think, in 20 years that he could really talk to someone about Dylan and, and about what the lyrics meant to him and about uh, memories that he associated with certain lyrics and, and what happened in his life in high school. And, you know, he, he really likes to do that. He likes to say, OK, I was there when I listened to this song and I can remember doing this when when this song was big. And um, uh, that's when I realized he was such an uber Dylan fan that, uh, you know, I just learned a lot from him. But then I probably took it next level because, you know, uh, my dad never got to see Dylan live. And, um, okay, compared to your previous guests and to you yourself, Rob, I think you mentioned you've seen Dylan more than 20 times live. 23, I think, is the last count. Holy, Holy moly. Okay, that's much more than me because, like I say, he never went to South Africa to tour. So um, but then, you know, I'm now an expat living in Taipei in Taiwan, and I moved here in 2000 for work related reasons. And also because, you know, I'm married to a Taiwanese lady. And then, you know, in 2001, Dylan on the never ending tour, he went to Japan to um, Kyoto to play at the Zen Rock Garden. And then these two Canadians. Yeah. These two Canadians and I, we were here in Taipei and uh, one of the guys just said, let's go see Dylan. It's just a, an hour and a half plane right away. Let's do it. So we literally decided in one night we're going to go see Dylan. And then that's the first live performance I saw of him uh, in 2001 in, in Japan. And it was very different than other live shows I've seen. You know, it's like maybe 3,000, 4,000 people, mm-hmm. you know, very low key concert. But it's such a great atmosphere. You know, you had like the, the Japanese who, who, strangely enough, huge Dylan fans. There's a huge fan base in Japan for Dylan. Um, and then, you know, but they're baby boomers and, and maybe they're kids and so forth, but they're there. And then you've got the foreign contingent, the, 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 the Westerners who flew in or, or who live in Japan and they're there. And the reaction to Dylan's songs are so different. You know, you've got the Japanese reaction, which is more muted. And then you've got the foreigners who just go apeshit every time they <laughs> the hit or, you know, um, so I really enjoyed that. And then. I, I tried to see him again in 2003, but um, I think they canceled that the Japanese tour that year. They, they were going to have it. They were going to have it, but they canceled it. And he went directly to Australia. And then in 2010, he came to Japan again. And this time in Tokyo, he played like lots of shows, I think maybe seven or I can't remember. But I just saw one of them. Um, and uh, that's the last time I saw him was in 2010. And so I've only seen him twice. Uh, so I feel a little bit like, why am I on this podcast? <laughs> oh, come on. What are you talking about, Herman? This... No, I'm kidding, but, yeah, but it, it was great. I, I love those shows. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, he's always been very popular in Japan. I remembered hearing about in the 70s when they released that box set uh, that was Japan only called Masterpieces. And I was like, yeah. like he's that. I was like, wow, he's that popular in Japan that they get their own special set and i actually spent a fortune to get it because it had one song i didn't have that was the level of my obsession i'm like i must get this one song i don't own i'll buy all three cds that's well that that's all wonderful i mean that's that's just great to have you've had a chance because i mean i was going to ask you because i mean i know you that he hasn't played south africa but i also know that you you live in another part of the world and i was wondering whether you had a chance to see him oh no no yeah i had to because he's he's definitely my favorite uh singer songwriter of all time, 
you know, so I had to see him. I just had to because I saw so many other people without seeing Dylan. I mean, I saw Bruce, Bruce Springsteen three times before I ever saw Dylan. And <laughs> Springsteen's, I like him, but he's not, not one of my favorites, you know. So I felt guilty, like, why haven't I seen Dylan? And the guy <laughs> tours endlessly. I yes, mean, he the does. Endless- so why, you know, there's no excuse. I had to go <laughs> sooner or later. That's yeah, superb. So, no. Well, that's I said that's great. I I love that whole story. And it's funny you mentioned about how you got got into him through Natural Born Killers, because I remember. I mean, that movie came. You mentioned ninety four, and that is when it came out, and that was just pre internet. And yeah. and I I remember going to that movie, and I didn't know that he had a song on the soundtrack. And I remember I went with my buddies to see that movie and then there's the scene that comes on and all of a sudden I hear the twang and I hear that voice I mean my ear is so tuned to hear that voice and the minute I (laughs) hear the you can see the period I was like what you know it was like it was like that's Dylan's voice (laughs) singing words I haven't heard him sing before and I bought the soundtrack just to get that one song because I was like I I must own it you know (laughs) that's the way it works Exactly. I, I was exactly the same. That's the reason I bought that soundtrack for that one song alone. The rest of the songs were great, too. But that song just stood out to me. And it was at such a good part of the movie, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that really, really tended a uh, really tender scene between Mickey and Mallory. And, and you, you really after all the violence and death, you, you really needed to calm down a little bit. And then the slow Dylan's, you know, uh, voice just just enters into it. Oh, I, I'll never forget that, you know, the first time I heard that song. So, you know, Dylan fan for life after that. Fantastic, man. All right. Well, that's cool. Well, said. well let's let's get to the song in question, which, as I mentioned, is Every Grain of Sand. Uh, it is the final track from his 1981 album, Shot of Love. And we're going to talk about the three different, there's three very distinct versions of this song. And I, I, I want to talk about all of them because I feel that they are very informative at sort of being able to, to figure out his creative process. Uh, I think for yeah. a lot of his other songs, we don't necessarily get that chance to hear one song in kind of all the different building blocks, but you can really hear the three distinct versions. Of course, there's the, uh, and I'm going to go in chronological order here. There's the original version. He wrote the song uh, in the summer of 1980, apparently while staying on his farm in Minnesota. And he recorded it in September of 1980, and it's this version that appeared on the Bootleg Series Volumes 1 to 3, which came out in 1991. That's the first version. Then he re-recorded it a couple of months later with a a little bit more of a band arrangement, and that version appears on the most recent Bootleg Series, which was the, the, the gospel set. So that's that version. That's the second version. And then there's the third version, which ended up on Shot of Love, which features some uh, changes in the lyrics. Uh, I, I think actually in terms of how many words is, are different, they're very small. But to me, it's it's a huge difference. And I'll, I'll get to that. And it's that version that was recorded under producer Chuck Plotkin. And that's the version that we hear on the the record on Shot of Love. And that's the version most yeah. everybody knows. That's the version that they, they put on biograph and stuff like that and so yeah now i would let me ask you right at the top uh, right, at, right at the top of your hermit like what is it about this song in particular that you because you mentioned this one and this was this was one i've always wanted to talk about because it is one of my all-time favorites but what is it about about it that works for you so much yeah well um i got into this song through strangely enough the lyrics first draw because um you know, um, there was a, a class I taught in in uh, Taiwan in my early years where I, um, you know, had to teach poetry and stuff like that. So, you know, we had to do uh, we, we could come up with our own curriculum. And then what I did was there, there was this Norton anthology 
you know, book of poetry that we were supposed to teach these kids. And Dylan had some songs in it at the back. And um, I think it was uh, not uh, not songs, the lyrics of some songs that we, you know, was was actually in this Norton anthology poetry book. And then um, I taught the Dylan songs. I think it was um, uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and, oh man, I can't remember the second one, but I taught them. And then the students responded so well to them that they said, okay, you know, uh, uh, can you pick more songs or can you pick more of Dylan's lyrics, teacher? You know, so I said, sure. And then I picked a couple, but a student came to me with the lyrics for this song. And up until this point in time, I had heard this song, but it was the gospel period. So I sort of ignored it a little bit when I had listened to it in the 90s. Uh, not because I didn't like the song. I really liked the song, but I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics. Then when I read the lyrics and I taught the lyrics to the students, I really fell in love with 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 the lyrics. And then once I understood the lyrics and what he was really saying, and then I listened to the song, then the melody started to speak to me. Because actually the melody for me is quite simplistic, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not one of those songs that, that when you hear it the first time, if you just, let's say you start listening from the from the, the middle of the song, you, know, you hear it on the radio or something, uh, um, then it won't really speak to me per se in terms of the melody. But if you started from the beginning on the album and you listen to it from from the get-go, you read the lyrics, you, you listen to what he's saying, then it really ingrains itself. Uh, pardon the pun, grain, but <laughs> really, yeah, it really makes an impression on, I think, on most people. I've played it to a couple of people and they've all responded the same way. My wife, you know, she loves the song and that's what got me into the song. I went lyrics first because I was teaching it to the kids. Um, and then, you know, it became possibly one of my top three favorite Dylan songs because it's one of his complicated songs. Um, it's not simplistic. It's it's sort of uh, kind of like a hard rain's going to fall when you when you think about, um, you know, uh, it, it's a bit apocalyptic. If you think about it, it's just before a guy's death or someone someone singing about his life just before he, he intends to die or before the, the last judgment comes. And, you know, that those kind of songs speak to me. And that's why the lyrics stood out to me. And that's that's what made me fall in love with the song from from the get go. But of course, there's there's other things, uh, you know, musically speaking about the song. That's great as well. I think it's so well produced, uh, probably the best produced song on Shot of Love. I don't know if you would agree with that, Rob. I uh, I would. It's up there. I, I There are some other yeah. tracks on that on that record that I find are a little like a little tinny to the ear. Uh, like a little too yeah. much of the kind of like uh, synth drums and stuff like that, but but not this one is is not that. So yeah, I, I would I would suggest it's certainly the best song on the record, and it's, and it does sound it sounds beautiful. Yeah, definitely, definitely, I agree. All three versions of it that we're going to discuss um, are for me masterpieces. It's just I love the fact that you know you're going to be talking about the three different um, versions of these songs because they're all excellent, but for different reasons. Right. I mean, one of the things that I've talked about this on on some previous episodes, although I haven't gotten to one of his gospel songs in a little while. But like, you know, I don't come to his gospel work with any religious affiliation at all, um, at, at all. And so I, I sort of approach all this material from uh, a more, I guess, intellectual point of view. Um, mm. Probably about the only thing I do that's intellectual, but it, it, it's, it's. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't come at it from a from a faith, but I, I'm able to transpose what he is saying into my own sets of like what things that are important to me. And this song, I find so powerful because, I mean, Bob, when he went religious, and I'm doing the air quotes here, I mean, he really took it in the teeth. 
uh, in terms of risking yeah. his popularity, risking everything that he had built up as this iconoclast, this independent thinker. And here he was all of a sudden following the dogma of a, of a church. And that was you know, a lot of people didn't like that and, and stuff like that. And and he went all in. I mean, he doesn't do anything half-assed. I mean, that is one thing you could say about the guy. When he does yeah. it, he does it. And you could argue maybe he shouldn't, but that he doesn't He doesn't do half-measures. And so for the first two records of this so-called Born Again trilogy, the Slow Train Coming and Saved, they are as religious as anything you can get. And then all of a sudden, that starts to fade a little with Shot of Love. And one of the things I like about this song is it's an admission uh, I mean, it may not be Dylan himself admitting this because, again, whoever knows whether you know, Dylan is just putting on a character or he's singing about himself. It really doesn't matter. But the character that's singing is someone who has moments of religious faith, deep religious faith, and then it is shaken. And for yeah. for Dylan to admit that to his audience, that takes guts. And And I think yeah. about in this day and age that we live in of social media where nobody – nobody can back down anymore on anything. Yeah. You know, that's right. you, you see people on social media and they'll, they'll say something wrong about some minuscule point. You know, oh, I believe, uh, I believe Batman first appeared in detective comics, number 29. Uh, no, it was number 27. No, it was 29 and you must die. You know, like no, the, <laughs> nobody can back down. Anymore. Everybody triples down when they've been shown that they're wrong on even the most minor point. And yeah. here you've got a guy who is now admitting to his audience, you know what, all that stuff that I said, maybe I don't fully believe it as much as I used to. And that I think that takes enormous courage. And to do it as beautifully as he does here, it's to me, it's it's just startling. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, during his uh, gospel trilogy or his Christian trilogy, whatever you call those three albums, um, that, you know, he really got a lot of uh Christian-based fans who might not have been fans of him in the 60s because of maybe they were orthodox or they were too hardcore Christian. They believed, you know, they equated Dylan with the Beatles or whatever. But um, I don't think he lost any fans when he wrote the song because, like you say, it is a winding down of his obsession with with the fact that he became a born-again Christian. And with, uh, I think he took a lot of the lyrics from these songs on Shot of Love from the from the Psalms and from, you know, it was inspired by some Bible verses, sure. but he didn't, you know, even, even though he did that and, and you can clearly see in the song that he is losing his, um, or, or he's, he's out of fallen out of love, uh, with his affair with Christianity. Um, I think you can still assume that he didn't lose a lot of fans because he does this elegantly, you know, yes. he just tells it like it is. And, you know, um, uh, now, nowadays, like you say, with internet culture, everybody's offended by everything all the time. You know, um, uh, uh, well, yeah, fine. You know, you can be offended, but I think Dylan was never afraid to offend. No, but if you can do it poetically, if you can do it elegantly, like like let's say, for instance, some 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 of the the great uh, debaters of our time, Christopher Hitchens, or or you know, um, uh, uh, guys like that, they they do it in an elegant way. So you know, if Anything of the song does offend people, Christians mostly. I think it's done so elegantly that they respect it. And and that's certainly, you know, what, what uh, some of my Christian f- friends feel when they look at this song. Yes. Uh, but I'm, you, I'm not coming from this from a religious point of view. I'm not religious at all. But, you know, I'm, I agree with you here. He's definitely winding down and saying, you know, this is it. This is the end of my uh, gospel uh, period. 
I'm glad you used the word elegant because I think that's a that's a very astute way of describing it. And it feels honest. It doesn't feel like he's trying to play games here. I mean, sometimes he'll do that. Sometimes he will. Uh, one of the other songs from this period, Caribbean Wind, which I, I covered on episode 75 with, oh, Laura, yeah. with Laura Tinchert. I mean, that's a song that he kind of lost the thread on at a certain point, and I think mm. he sort of subbing out some of the better words for for, for not as good for changes because I think he was mm. starting to maybe kind of you know, clothe a little of the the meaning of what he was originally getting at, and maybe he was afraid of expressing it that way. But you know, I don't get that read here. And and again, the word elegant is great. I mean, some of the the, the song goes on. Uh, in the third verse, he says, "Oh, the flowers of indulgence and the weeds of yesteryear." Like criminals, they have choked the breath of conscience and good cheer. The sun beat down upon the steps of time to light the way, to ease the pain of idleness and the memory of decay. I gaze into the doorway of temptation's angry flame, and every time I pass that way, I always hear my name. Then onward in my journey, I've come to understand that every hair is numbered like every grain of sand. And like I listen to these words and they seem so precise. There doesn't I don't feel like that there is one wasted word in this entire yeah. song. And that's that's it's so I mean, not that Dylan isn't direct in a lot of his other songs, but this thing is so specific and as you said, yeah. elegant. It really does feel mm. like it could fall apart at any moment if just the wrong note is hit or the wrong word is used, the wrong rhyme, but it never does. And that's there's does. something wonderfully almost tense about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I mean, it's it's important to note that I mean the the title of the song "Every Grain of Sand" it was inspired by William Blake, right? The 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 poem that William Blake did about orgies of innocence, I think it's right. called, yes. where he says, you know, to see a world in a grain of sand. And you see, when you when you think about that, you know, like modern artists using poetry from the 18 or the 1900s to to supplement their songs or to provide inspiration, you're kind of thinking, oh, that's, you know, it's been tried and done. It's the 60s thing. But here, actually, Dylan just takes that one line, the, the title of the song. That's the only thing. And then he sort of um, uh, veers off in another direction. He's not going full William Blake here. He's, he's going his own route. So he puts uh, out these lyrics that are that can stand easily stand on par with Blake's poem. Uh, I think lyric uh, in in terms of structure and in terms of of imagery uh, invoked, and um, you know it it's sort of even for me in some ways superior <laughs> to what guys like like Blake uh, did. You know the 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 old poets who are not too old for us to get lost in the the ancient flowery language. You know William Blake's you know closer to modern times. You can understand what he does, and you know I think Dylan he didn't really take uh, inspiration from Blake so much as saying like. This image is something I like, every mm -hmm. grain of sand. And we are so small and infinitesimal if you compare us, you know, to all these wonders that we see every day. And I want to write something about that. I want to take that same image. I'm not borrowing. I, want, I just want to use that image. And that's what I like about this song. It, it's uh, on another level. It speaks to me than, than it would if I had to read Blake's poem. Um, it's more modern. It's more uh, in tune with, with, with uh, the, the 20th century, I should say. Um, for me at the time that I first read it. So uh, Dylan could do that. He could do that. I mean, you could just read this thing and you would fall in love with it. And then that would make you want to go and find the song and listen to the song. And then that even enhances the experience of, of the whole song because it's sort of me uh, melancholic if you think about it, Rob. I mean, not every version, but uh, the, the Shot of Love one, 
it, it for me it, it's like a melancholy song it's like saying okay this is my life the twilight of my life and and these are the things i learned and these are the things i appreciate and uh i, I appreciate the the endlessness the infinity of the universe but I, but i also feel this this despair almost uh, because you know i've come to realize something an epiphany at the very end you know why couldn't i have realized this earlier in my life um so yeah i mean every single verse you could could talk about it for an hour if you think right. about it just four lines <laughs> it contains a world in in just a verse you know just like he says every grain of sand you know there's a world in every grain of sand this this ver every verse is like that yeah, I, I said it's uh, the the final two verses, and there's again, there's, it's the final verse that has a slight change, and that's going to lead me into these alternate versions that I don't want to talk about. So the the next to last verse, he says, he sings, "I have gone from rags to riches in the sorrow of the mm -hmm. night, in the violence of a summer's dream, in the chill of a wintry light, in the bitter dance of loneliness fading into space, in the broken mirror of innocence on each forgotten face." I hear the ancient footsteps like the motion of the sea. Sometimes I turn, there's someone there. Other times it's only me. I am hanging in the balance of the reality of man, like every sparrow falling, like every grain of sand. Now, the the, the version on Shot of Love, they, those are the words from the Shot of Love version, which is I am That's hanging right. in the balance of the reality of man. The version, the original version that line is different. He sings in the bootleg series version from volume one. He sings, I am hanging in the balance of a perfect finished plan. Yeah. And that is something, the, the whole notion of predestination, of, of the, the, your path is set for you. That was something that he was using, uh, he was indulging a lot of a lot in uh, in Caribbean Wind. Later on in Joker Man, there's mm. an alternate version of Joker Man where he talks about predestination. So that was on yeah. his mind a lot at this point. And so I want to ask you, like, which version? I, I hate to reduce something down to like what's your favorite because they're all great, as you said, they're all masterpieces. But do you have a particular favorite of the three? Yes, I um, prefer. Okay, um, I should mention the, the one on the bootleg series. Well, I, I don't know if you wanted to mention this later, uh, Rob, where the dog barks twice. I <laughs> that, absolutely want to mention that. So amazing, you know the. Uh, so, but it's unfair for me to say that's my favorite version because of that surprising, you know, a uh, bit of recording of the dog. It's just. Um, I like I like that one, but um, if I had to look at it lyrically speaking, I, I would prefer the lyrics um, from from Shot of Love, where it's I'm hanging the balance of the reality of man, uh, because um, I don't know he must have changed that, um, you know, like you say he recorded the the boot the, the bootleg version first, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, that is a very important change because a perfect plan, you know, where everything is predestined, you know that that's might have spoken to him at some point in time during when when he wrote the lyrics and then for some reason he changed that and for me uh changing it to uh in the balance of the reality of a man that sort of makes it more ambiguous because you know our realities are subjective if you think about it man whereas if you say the perfect plan based on whatever you know uh, religion you're believing in you're believing in something that is set uh, that is set in stone for everyone 
You know, uh, there's no, you know, um, interpreting it in a different way. There's no, um, you know, coming to it in a subjective fashion. But changing it to the reality of man makes it more open-ended for me. I like that that lyric a lot. In fact, that whole last verse is my favorite. Um, but since we're talking about this line, uh, for that simple fact, and because of the music as well, on Shot of, of Love, they, you know, produced it quite well. Um, I, I prefer that version. I think they've got the guy from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers also playing keyboards on that version. Yeah, I believe Ben uh, Montench, I believe, is playing on it. Yes. Yeah, Ben Montench. And he didn't do that on the bootleg series, I think, the first recording. No. I'm not sure. Yeah, but they've got Goldman on arpeggios, which I, 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 I like. I really like the arpeggio you know, that you hear in the background where it rises and falls and rises and falls. You've got that on most versions. Mm. But my favorite is Shot of Love. But what about yours, man? Well, it's like I said, it was interesting to me about this song and that you really can look at the three versions and, and see how he went from A to B to C. And not all of his songs, even with all the bootleg stuff that's been unearthed, um, gives you that chance. Uh, I, I mean, like when, again, when we talked about all the different versions of Caribbean Wind, I'm never, sh- mm. I'm, I'm not sure which version came first. So it's hard for me to say. Well, okay, I can see how he subbed this line and that line became that line. But this song is very clearly the first version is very the way he sings it is very kind of flat. Um, Clinton Halen yeah. in his book dismisses that version as saying that he thinks he sings it in a very interesting way. I'll get to that in a moment. And then it's kind of just him with the dog barking. And again, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then <laughs> then you get the middle version. And in the middle version, the first half of the song is kind of just him. And then when he gets to um, uh, he gets to the line about, um, oh, shoot, what, there's a there's a part where the band kicks in. Um, and the, the, it's the, the, it's like the band comes in halfway through and it's almost like, you know, okay, boom. And now the band is with him. And then in the third version, the band is kind of there from the very beginning. And of course the third version, the one on shot of love has harmonica. He's not playing harmonica yeah. in either of the other two. And I really love the harmonica solos, uh, mm. on the shot of love version. I, yeah. I lived with the shot of love version for a couple of years. I mean, as I've mentioned many times on the show, I got into Dylan around 19, 19- 89 or 90 and then the bootleg series came out in 91 so the the shot of lovers even though that record had been out for 10 years i didn't own it until 90 so that but that was the version i was familiar with and i loved it i thought it was a great great song but when i got to the bootleg series version the dog barking one just for the sake of clarity let's call it the one with the dog barking (laughs) that one floored me in a way to where i not only think Every Grain of Sand is one of Dylan's 10 best songs. Elvis Costello said he thinks it's his best song, period. Um, That performance, the one on the bootleg series with the dog barking, is one of my favorite things he has ever done. I would put that on, you know, like, hey, you know, you're going to go live on the moon now. You got to, you can, you can, what songs are you going to cram on one CD to bring with you? And that one I would bring on. (laughs) I love the way he sings it. I like the kind of flatness of it because that version to me doesn't sound like somebody singing. It sounds like they're ruminating just in their head and we're just happening to hear it. And there's something about the way he just sings it in this very straightforward. It sounds very different than the way he normally sings. And then when you hear the dog barking, it is such a discordant, strange 
thing to throw in. And just the reality of it makes me wonder, like, how did that even happen? Like, did somebody bring their dog to the recording studio? That seems <laughs> unlikely. Is it Bob's dog? Like, what? Like, did they? I wish we could ask him about that. I know. That. And it's I just like, wish. How, how, somebody, if, how these, he's been interviewed four billion times. I'd, I'd have to, that'd be the first thing. I'd be like, Bob, wait, before we even talked about the Sinatra stuff. With the yeah. dog barking. How, how did that come about? But the fact <laughs> it, it sounds kind of corny, I know, but like when I hear that version and I hear the dog barking, the dog barks twice. There's two different times the dog is barking. Yeah. And you hear there's a slight echo to it. Um it it gives to me the whole thing like a feeling of someone in the Garden of Eden. You know, like they're in this yeah. it's that line about, you know, if if there's a heaven and there's no dogs in it or there's no animals in it, then it ain't heaven. And I definitely subscribe to that theory. And so to me, it's like I sort of envision Bob in this kind of like, you know, like heavenly light sitting there in a garden and everything's and he's surrounded by animals. And we know that Bob loves dogs. He's been owning dogs his whole life. There's it's the kind of thing where I think if someone told me, man, that dog barking, that really takes me out of the song. I couldn't argue with them. I can't I couldn't go to them and say, no, you're wrong. But I love it. I just love it. And I've listened to that version thousands of times at this point. So that to me is my favorite. I love them all. I, I agree with you. I think they're all masterpieces. But that original version, I am just – I'm shaken by it because to me it's – again, yeah, as, someone, yeah. as someone who's coming at it from not a religious background, but the idea of wanting to believe in something and sometimes believing in it and then sometimes not – yeah. That is, to me, the haunting part. I mean, again, the line about sometimes I turn, there's someone there. Other times it's only me. I mean, to me, that is simultaneously yeah, chilling and also warm in, in its own weird way. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that I meant. I completely agree with you there, Rob. This is the more emotional version of the song, you know, Um this song that, you know, the others are. He probably did a couple of takes on them and, you know, um, they uh, you know, went over them. And, and, um, I think they even played, you know, part of the, the, uh, guitar again, they, 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 uh, did a couple of uh, takes, but this one, I think, I don't know if I read this somewhere, but I know that he wrote the song in one sitting. And then I think he also recorded this, uh, the bootleg version in just one sitting. Right. So yeah, that's so. why, yeah. Obviously, yeah. So you get the purest form of his expression in these two, in the, in the song. You know, in terms of how he wrote it and how he recorded it the first time. So if you're looking at it from that point of perspective, you know, it's definitely the more, um, you know, uh, the emotional of the two versions. I'm comparing it to my favorite version now, which is the the, the one on Shot of, of Love. But that's how you could appreciate Bob Dylan in this sense. You could either look at it as song for song or you can look at it as a kind of time in his life. Uh, if you want to know more about his, you know, biography. You can either read books on him or you can look at the songs that he wrote at the time and sort of learn where he was in his life from what he wrote. And that's what I like about this song. You get a, a kind of like uh, uh, you, you, you're seeing a window into Dylan's life at this point in time. And having this version of the bootleg series, which is this this one recording he did where the dog barks, it's it's a kind of a form of verisimilitude, you know, mm-hmm, of reality. Mm-hmm that you don't get with a lot of other artists. And that's what I love about the bootleg series and all the outtakes they released is you get a sense, like, you know, there's this, um, you know, when he records with George Harrison at one point in time, uh, he, he talks to him before he says something. I love that. Oh, right. You know, no, um, if not for you, he says, hey, George. Yeah, yeah. you hear him say it. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, when you hear these guys interacting or or even if they're not interacting with other people, just saying something before they start to record or you hear his dog barking. For me, that is so great. It just makes me feel like, oh, I know this guy now. I know him better than I knew him before. You know, then when I listen to his his, uh, you know, tracks that have been not overproduced, but have been, you know, uh, polished Mm -hmm. more. So, yeah, I I get where you're coming from, that you like this one more. Um, I'm not in a similar headspace at the moment, but I you almost convinced me just now during your (laughs) monologue. Yeah, during your monologue there, I was like thinking, whoa, okay, maybe I should change my mind. (laughs) I said, I mean, again, it's it's such a small change lyrically but again and again I, lo- I love the shot of love version i mean again the, the the lines i mean you talk about that you're getting to know bob dylan in the song i mean the line about uh i don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake like Cain, i now behold mm-hmm. this chain of events that i must break i mean good lord if there is anybody who has to live up or down to a lifetime of events that people have been tracking. This is Bob Dylan. I mean, this is a guy who has lived in the public yeah. sphere for almost yeah. 60 years at this point. I mean, all of us are the sum total of our experiences, you know, at any given That's point. Right. But most of us can just sort of, you know, put them behind us or at the very least, the world doesn't know about them. But I mean, this is yeah. this is a guy who's had to do all this stuff in front of everybody. He's had to have yeah. children in front of everybody. He's had to get married and get divorced and and... And for him to talk about, I don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. I mean, it's like, is he saying, well, you know, that religious period was a mistake, but I don't have I'm not inclined to look back on it. Let's just move forward. I mean, that could be what that is. And again, it works for anybody because it's like, you know, how much time do we all waste obsessing about decisions we've made in the past when there really is no point you you hopefully you learn from it and you go forward but a lot of us and and i'm raising my hand here as as i'm talking (laughs) you know chew on things about the past and go over and over it to where you've just you've beaten that horse to death for no good reason and i just i love the the idea of i behold this chain of events that I must break. I mean, he sees the problem in front of him and he knows what the solution is. It's just, it's startling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like the way, you know, the fact that even though you and I both aren't religious, we can interpret the songs based on our own experiences and we could actually, you know, use this uh, song to kind of understand ourselves better. And that's what I like about, I mean, for for me, Rob, if I can uh, just mention this as an example of what we're, we're saying here, um, that line that you just mentioned about you're not inclined to look back on your mistakes. You know, when I first read that, uh, probably the early 2000s when I was teaching it to the class, you know, the kids were talking about it endlessly and they were discussing it and and what does it mean? And I said, well, obviously, I mean, uh, I didn't tell them he sees his gospel period as a mistake. I said, you know, a guy like Dylan, you know, he's he's done a lot in life. He, you know, a lot of ideologies influenced him, a lot of ideas, a lot of people that, you know, were important, might not be important to him anymore, influences he had and so forth. It might be that. But, you know, I wasn't thinking about Dylan at that time. I was thinking about me. You know, would I completely be able to just wipe the slate clean and said, you know, I'm not actually the person to look back on mistakes. I'll just let that go. And I I wasn't at that time. But, you know, this the song kind of made me think, what if, you know, what if I was like Dylan at this point in time when I say like, okay, this is, this is my final word on the subject. And from here on in, I'm going forward. And, you know, um, at that point in time, I was thinking, hey, you know, this song really does offer you kind of a blueprint of, you know, what a person's life was like and what it could now be. It's like almost turning a new page. 
And I think that's telling because it's the final song on Shot of Love. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you think of, of the song as the last judgment, you know, a person, you know, just before his time of dying, like I mentioned earlier, then this is very profound because he's saying it might not be death. I might be entering a new life, you know, so and that life must be free from from worrying about the previous one. And that's why that line is so telling, you know, about not looking back on any mistakes. But but for me, you know, since I'm, you know, Rob, I'm a big uh, fan of horror. You know, I, I do a horror podcast with Longbox of Darkness. You know, my favorite line, it, it comes at, at the, the very final verse where actually it's the, the entire verse that speaks to me. Because, I mean, if you if you like horror, there are different kinds of horror, existential horror, you know, you've got that. You've also got horror of the unknown, you know, fear of the unknown. And you've also got the horror of loneliness, you know. Um, and uh, that is portrayed in movies most most aptly and also in books and comics and so forth. But in this final uh, um, verse, he says, I hear the ancient footsteps like the motion of the sea. Now, if you're a horror fan, you, you immediately, when you read that, you think Lovecraft. Mm. <laughs> you know, because... Lovecraft was obsessed with with, you know, the unknown and, you know, infinity and how that instead of making you feel, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. It will actually scare you because you're you're being, um, you know, sort of your your consciousness is being attacked, you know, by by your worldview, your your worldview is being shattered by this endlessness, this 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 existential horror, this loneliness. And then you get to the next part where he says, you know, um, uh, I hear the ancient footsteps like the motion of the sea. Sometimes I turn, there's someone there. Other times it's only me, right? Now, if you if you think about that parable from the Bible where, you know, a guy walks on the beach and he turns and Jesus is always behind him, something like that, right? And, you know, sometimes he's, now in Dylan's case, he's sometimes behind him, he's sometimes not behind him, making Dylan unsure of, you know, what if he's doing, if what he's doing now is right. But for me, that sort of speaks to loneliness, you know, like, Ultimately, we're all alone and ultimately we're faced with this endlessness, you know, of, of the universe. We don't know what's going to happen. Nothing might happen, which is also a horror in itself. Mm. But you have to deal with it. And this song helped me to deal with that on a, on a certain level, you know, like realizing that we're all alone, but we're all coming to the universe in our own way. And this is just a, a peek into Dylan's mind, which which you don't get from. I mean, you don't get this exact um, version of Dylan's thoughts in many of his other songs. So uh, that's what I like about this song is it's it, it opens up more venues for you to explore as just a reader of the lyrics. Yeah, he talked about in an interview that he didn't even really know where the words were coming from. He just said it, they were just popping into his head and he was jotting them down. I mean, the quote is, uh, he says, that was an inspired song that came to me. I felt like I was just putting down the words that were coming from somewhere else, and I just stuck it out. I mean, I mean of course, that's him probably being a little uh, immodest. You know, he's making it sound yeah. like, well, I don't know. I just wrote it down. I mean, obviously, I'm sure he worked on it with his pencil and went on. And, you know, no song which that has language this beautiful and this specific just comes to you. I'm sure it's yeah. hard work. But nevertheless, it, it it does feel a little bit like some of his other masterpieces that – like whether they be visions of Johanna or, or maybe mm. lads, you know, like tangled up in blue or something where mm. they, they seem to come from some other place where you're just like, I can't believe a person sat and thought of this, you know? And, yeah. you know, it seems like there's got to be some other thing 
at work here and you can call that whatever you want but it feels like that with this song and yet again it's so, despite the flowery flowery language it is very down to earth i mean you, again you talk about the that the sometimes i turn there's it's only me he's talking about a very basic human emotion and lo- loneliness uh yeah, you know and, and yet and yet it is so beautifully poetic it, it gets that that uh that yin and yang that's again it just it keeps you going back over and over again and that's what makes it age so beautifully i mean this song is 37 years old at this point and it's funny you mentioned it but yeah. like it, it feels like it's written by someone at the end of their journey and he keeps writing mm. these songs about men at the end of their journeys you know he just keeps going uh i yeah. mean good lord time time out of mind seems to be an entire album written by somebody who's ready to die and that album's 21 yeah. that album's 21 <laughs> years old for pete's sake so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about this is the amazing thing about this thing uh, about Dylan, Rob, is he was always able to do this. Think about it. When he, what, he was 20, 21 years old when he wrote A Hard Rain is Going to yeah, Fall. Right. And that one is a stream of consciousness masterpiece about living just before the apocalypse. If you think about the whole Cuban Missile Crisis at the time and, and so forth, you know, he was probably some people speculate he was thinking this is his final song that he's going to be able to write. So he's just going to pour everything he has into it. And, you know, this, not that they are the same song at all, but um, I mentioned earlier, that song is so sophisticated. A Hard Rain's Going to Fall. This one has the same level of sophistication, but it sort of um, shows a more mature-minded work, but it also highlights the fact that he was able to do that when he was only a 21-year-old kid. So this guy's not normal. He's not normal. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't have done this... At 21, I couldn't even do this when I've had like a lifetime of, of poetry behind me. At the age of 50 or 55, I wouldn't be able to write something like this. So, again, shows you uh, Dylan, you know, his aptitude in all parts of songwriting, lyrically, musically, you know, instrumentally. He's got it all down. Um, and that's why I guess he's our favorite because there's just no weakness in the man's. I mean, obviously, sometimes our albums have not been recorded well because of you know, practice sessions or whatever. He wasn't happy with producers. He's a hard man to work with. But, you know, that doesn't matter for me. The, the, the fact of the matter is you have this thing that he's created, that he's produced, and, and anybody can pick it up. Anybody could sing it. I mean, we should probably mention it was sung at, at Johnny Cash's funeral, right? That's right. Uh, Emmylou Harris and Sheryl Crow covered it at Johnny Cash's oh, funeral. Okay. okay. So I, I forgot who, but, you know, I, I remember I read about it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interview. And, um, you know, this song is, in fact, a lot of famous musicians' favorite song, mm-hmm. you know, of Dylan, of Dylan's repertoire. I think Bono, he said, he said this is one of his favorite songs. I, I don't remember the quote, but Bono once said that this is like Dylan being one of, you know, Jesus' disciples. And he, he's writing his own psalm or his own chapter of the Bible in this one song. That's how, how important it should be, even though it's not, obviously, he's, he's, he's stepping away from the Bible at this point in time. But that's how it influenced someone like Bono. And, and, and you know, like you say, Sheryl Crow has said this is one of her favorite songs. And, um, I, you know, my dad, too. I, uh, my dad never had the gospel albums. When I introduced the song to him, it immediately became one of his top ten. There you go. You know, it, so that, that says something. If it can influence so many people... You know, there's definitely something about the song, and um, I'm so glad you picked me to talk about this thing because I, I, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to say half as much about other Dylan songs. I probably would have, you know, but but this song really speaks to me 
on a whole other level. Yeah, uh, this thing is uh, when uh, when Bruce Springsteen uh, inducted Dylan into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, he used this song as an example to show that, of course, because you have to remember the context. When Dylan was inducted in 1988, he was coming. Yeah. This was just before the Wilburys, just before Oh Mercy. He was coming off the worst string uh, in his career, the worst five years of his career. I mean, pretty mm. much. And I I don't mean to – I hate to keep going over the same ground because we've talked about it in other episodes. But, like, all of Bob's worst stuff was condensed in that five-year period from, like, 84 to 88. I mean, the worst records, the worst yeah. live albums. He was in that awful movie. Uh, you know, I mean, and and so here, <laughs> here he is getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, at the, of course, at that point – that could sort of make it seem like they're putting a headstone on his career. You know, it's like, okay, this guy was once really great, and now we're going to put him in this museum, uh, you know, where Infinity goes up on trial. And and But nevertheless, Springsteen said, uh, if you if a modern singer had written every grain of sand, they would be called the new Bob Dylan. And so he was using wow. that as, you know, that look, this guy, yeah, yeah. This, this song's only, at the time Springsteen said that, this song was only seven years old. And that yeah. this song is as genius as anything he's done. I mean, I try and think about mm. this is this is the kind of stuff I would love to to learn from someone else, not from Bob, because Bob, of course, comes yeah. at it from a different perspective. But like, I'm trying to picture <laughs> being like Chuck Plotkin, you know, this record yeah. producer, and here comes Bob, and here's Bob with probably this you know this notebook full of stuff with like a pencil, and he's like, oh, here's some stuff I wrote down. Here, I'm gonna, let me let me do this one, and you read the words, you get. Oh my God! You know, you know, like what? What are you kidding? Yeah. You know that kind of. I mean, you just you. The idea of probably sitting yeah. in a cold recording studio, looking at these words written on notebook paper and in pencil, and Bob's handwriting must just yeah. be so unreal. Of of like, I'm looking at something that's going to last a thousand years, and here it is, right in front of me on some cheap paper. It's got to be unbelievable. That's right. I completely agree with you, Rob. That's why if there's any Kickstarter that backs a viable time machine, <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna fund that that sucker, and you and I are gonna go back in time, and we're gonna observe this firsthand. <laughs> I would absolutely love that. That would be. I. I would have, boy, jeez. I. I mean, first we got to kill Hitler. Second, we would go back and <laughs> and and f- visit some of the yeah. recording sites. Blood on the tracks. I want to go to that one. I'm gonna go to this one. I go to series of dreams, stuff like that. So, mm. yeah. I mean, wow. we could we could go on and on about the song. Uh, it is one of the songs that I have always wanted to talk. It is one of the things that makes me the fan of his that I am is because this song just cuts me to the quick every time I hear it. And it loses none of its power despite the thousands of listens I've had. And it, it, I guess, and I just find it so amazingly powerful and I'm an animal person, you know, and when I hear that dog bark, I just yeah. get this goofy yeah. grin on my face. Cause I'm like, that yeah. is a, to, to use a non poetic term, that is a baller move. To, to put yeah. a dog barking yeah. on your song because that, yeah. that could just ruin the whole thing. And the fact that it doesn't is just amazing. But again, as you said, all three versions are unbelievable. Mm. And so this is yeah. just a song that just works in, in all of its guises. Now, live, it has only been performed 185 times in the last 37 years. That doesn't seem like a lot when you compare it to, no. you know, all along the Watchtower. But still, yeah. 185 times is a lot. <laughs> he last played it in 2013. So it's one of these songs that just every so often 
he pulls out. And I have never mm-hmm. got to hear it live. I mean, there are live versions. There is one on the bootleg series, but I've never heard it played in, at a show that I've been at. But boy, I would love to hear it just to, to hear him try it. Uh, it would be yeah. pretty remarkable. So again, it's been five years since he played it, but you know, you never know with him. Yeah, I hope. I mean, if he ever comes to Japan in this in my neck of the woods over here, I'm definitely going to go see him. And every single time I've seen him, the, well, the two times, only the, the, the two times that I've seen him in the past, I was actively listening for this song, <laughs> you know, because it is one of my, my top three favorite Dylan songs. So he hasn't played it, but here's hoping the next one he might. Uh, I, I just wish we could do an online petition or something sometimes, Rob, like a set list. Like, OK, Bob, you're coming to Japan. This is what the Japanese fans and the Taiwanese fans want you to play. <laughs> Please consider some of these songs. But, you know, that's not the way they pick the list. I don't I'm not even sure how they pick the set list. Uh, but um, uh, like I say, I'm I really want to hear the song live. That's probably my next Dylan milestone. And what an what an experience that would be, Rob. That would be. Amazing. That would be incredible. It would be. He yeah. did play it once in Japan in March 13th, 2001. He played it in uh, Hamamatsu, Japan. Is that Hamamatsu? Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's it's not the one we were at. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know that. That's, I didn't know he go. played yeah. it. Now, now I now I really feel bad. Now I'm kicking myself here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I didn't even make you feel worse. He seems to play it a lot in foreign countries. It, over the, over the, I'm looking at these this list, and it's a lot of Italy, a lot of Norway. Mm. I don't know why necessarily, but uh, that seems to be something that he pulls out more when he's uh, in, in other parts of uh, the world. But but nevertheless, yeah, yeah. I, I hope I hope that he... I don't think he ever gives up on any of his songs. I think they're always uh, they're they're always up for grabs. And so, yeah, I hope that that this is something that he pulls out yeah. every song. I would love to hear it uh, live or Same something here. like that. So, well, uh, I guess we should wrap it up here. We've been talking about an hour about this one song, and as you <laughs> said, we could keep going on and on. I think it's, there's just that much to it. But uh, Herman, thank you so much. This has just been so much fun. I've really enjoyed all our times we've been. I had a chance to podcast together, and this was just tremendous. I was so excited um, to do this one with you, and so this was just great. So, again, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, um, like you mentioned before, I'm doing two podcasts, although I took a little bit of a a break. You could call it medical leave (laughs) for a couple of months, but I'm back now. So I'm doing the Long Box of Darkness, um, and I'm also doing the Into the Weird podcast. You can find both of those on iTunes and various other um, you know, a podcast uh, players and, and sites. And then, you know, I'm also running two blogs, uh, in, uh, the Sink Into the Weird blog and the longboxofdarkness.com. Uh, so, you know, check that out for some comic talk. But, um, you know, I, I don't have any any Dylan-esque sites because I'm leaving that to, to experienced professionals like you, Rob. <laughs> and uh, really, because of that, I'm really glad you approached me. And, and like you, I've mentioned before, the Fire and Water Network are kind of like, my uh my heroes my podcasting guru so uh thanks again for for helping me along my podcasting path and definitely my love for dylan has been you know again firmly uh you know cemented here by this podcast so uh i've got you to thank for that man so kudos oh, i'm very <laughs> glad and instead of the i love the end of the weird show specifically because it's it's all that marvel 70s stuff and if there's any character in the marvel universe that listens to bob dylan i'm pretty sure it's dr strange 
Oh, definitely, man. Just think about it. He must be playing uh, you know, Dylan all the time in the background while he's like, you know, um, meditating on the wonder of what tomb and, and whatnot. And oh, uh, Dylan probably inspired him. He probably, I'm <laughs> sure. I mean, he's, he lives down in the village for Pete's sakes. He's down there. He's buying bootlegs. He's doing all kinds of, you know, what the hell? And you know, you, when he tell me he wants to go to a concert, he can just transport there. He doesn't have to get on a plane like you had to. He can just... You know, pulls cape exactly. over and did, boom, there he is. So it's fantastic. Yeah, and and Doctor Strange has time traveled before, so we can petition him there if we go. ever want to find out these hidden stories behind the recordings and the dog. Think about the oh, dog. It <laughs> seems like a story Steve Engelhardt or or uh, or Steve Gerber would have written or something like that. Well, well, definitely Steve Gerber, except it would have been a, a phone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Think about the defenders. Exactly. But yeah, no. Uh, uh, Rob, really, I mean, so many things uh, about our lives. I think we, we're almost the same age, you and I. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, even though we grew up in different countries, uh, different, you know, things uh, influenced us, but also in many ways, the same things. And Dylan was a big, big part of my childhood, like you say, from the from the 1990s upwards. And, and you got him in 89. So, um, you know, we, we've got the same kind of sensibilities, I think. And uh, we appreciate him for the same reasons uh, most of the time. So, Absolutely. you know, that's that's. That's why I love meeting Dylan fans. And I, I really was so surprised when Pod Dylan came out. But because I kind of put you guys on a pedestal, you know, uh, I never really approached you to to be on the show because, you know, you, you're scared to meet your, your idols. Oh, and, stop and you it. Stop it, Herman. Just stop it. <laughs> but I'm glad you reached out. Thanks, uh, man. I said I am, I'm thrilled to do it. I said this is one of the, the, the big, big songs, and I'm really glad we got mm. a chance to talk about it. And I hope that everybody feels like we did it right. We just said we did over an hour on, on just this single song, so I figure that's the, the tribute that the song deserves. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And, of course, if you find back episodes of the show, go to the website, firewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. I guess it's called Apple Music now uh, and Stitcher. Yeah. And uh, you can uh, – we're always talking about the Dylan, of course – over on Twitter, which is how Herman and I got together for this, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, we will see you later. Bye. the time of my confession in the hour of my deepest need when the pool of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn seed there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere toiling in the danger To look back on any mistake Like can I now behold this chain of events That I must break In the fury of the moment I can see the master's hand In every leaf that trembles In every grave Good cheer. 
I turn. 